0: Hi everybody! Welcome to our eleventh, one where's my webcam? Eleventh of our sessions on forest ecology with Mark Shepard. And if you haven't been here before, you're going to love this. This is going to be fun. If uh, you definitely want to go back and listen to replays, Mark has been with us and talked about things all over the world. But he's talked to us from Africa. He's talked to us from airports. He's talked to us from you name it. Um, I've been in a McDonald's parking lot in 100-degree weather in Southern California. I've been in Yuma, Arizona at 120. We've done it from everywhere. We've got it. Um, if you didn't hear, we're actually under a little bit of a fire. Um, warning right now, we have a forest fire that's burning about half mile from us. and It's going the other way, but we may get evacuated. This is Mark's show tonight anyway, so I'm not going to do anything other than just make this introduction. Quickly say, if you haven't done it yet, again, Go into the replays, which are on the Economic Action Team site, and that is—I won't give the URL. I'll give it, but it's c. Uh, at c.eed.mykajabi.com. And um, and you, if you aren't already opted in and you're registered for this, you will be. I will make you a member if you haven't. If you're here for the first time, most of you have been here before, so you already are members. And I'm going to stop with that and turn it over to Mark.
1: Okay, hey, welcome everybody. Um, uh, like Wayne said, is we're involved here in a exposition of basic forest ecology um, curriculum. <clears throat> I just unplugged my computer. And uh, I really do encourage you guys to go back and look at all of the, if you haven't gone through all of them, to at least sit through, through them again because they're cumulative. What we talk about in each session is going to depend on what we learned in the previous session. And um, tonight uh we 're continuing this is phase three of disturbance uh, how ecosystems uh, change through time as they 're growing and changing something happens to to cause an issue in that system that 's the disturbance that 's how we want to view managing our land as restoration agriculture uh, farmers and ranchers and uh now, why isn 't my there we go of course. Uh, Once again, I got my original inspiration from J. Russell Smith, Tree Crops, A Permanent Agriculture. I've been interested in developing a permanent agriculture ever since I was uh, in high school, believe it or not. Ran into the word permaculture, to the book Permaculture, and was trained in in permaculture back in the early 90s. Eventually got my diploma from Bill Mollison himself. Uh, The the, the phrase, though, that, that changed my life and really got my thinking totally different is this, that with permaculture, Our aim is to design systems that are ecologically sound and economically profitable. And from my perspective, there really is no other thing that we need to work on because if we create a system that's ecologically sound and economically profitable, now we have time to deal with social issues and, um, you know, who lives where and all kinds of different other uh, uh, things. But if we don't have ecological systems that feed us, and provide us with the goods uh, that we need in order to uh, to get by then what's the point so my aim is to create systems that are ecologically sound and economically profitable and there we go. Uh, Of course David Holmgren uh, uh, reconfigured a lot of, of Bill Mollison's they used to be called Mollisonisms which are the permaculture principles and where we are firmly rooted right now is observe imitate and interact. This is A number one, both Holmgren and Mollison talk about it. I stress it over and over and over again. We need to observe nature, imitate the systems, then interact with that. Uh, If we aren't aren't observing nature, we miss the whole point. I just got a lengthy email from a person this morning uh, talking about uh, all sorts of different guild creation systems and protocols and he's learned from this person, and that person, and this person, and that person, and you know, there's no numbers on it and all that kind of stuff. So we don't have to invent guilds, uh, for however nature got here, all the answers are for us already, but we have to understand how do we observe nature, how does it work, and then once we understand what it is and how it works, then we can imitate that. <clears throat> and, in order to observe and interact, we have to know the difference between observation and a concept. Observation is something we see here, taste, touch, smell, measure with instruments. And if I give you the, uh, a list that says how to observe this phenomena, you will observe the same phenomena as I do. You may call it something totally different uh, than I do with a different name, but we observe the same phenomena. We'll talk about this later on. I'll remind me when we get to uh, Stump Sprouts um, to, to talk about this again, the difference between observation and a concept. What a book, Restoration Agriculture, buy it if you haven't, read it, super simple. It's actually, um, it was uh, just last week, I found out that it's now being translated into Spanish, which I, I suspect is going to be even bigger uh, seller than in the English, because there are more people involved in agriculture who speak Spanish, whether it's in you know, North America, Central, South America, Europe, um, a lot of folks speak Spanish more than English when it comes to agriculture. Forest ecology, the study, the scientific study, repeatable observable uh, study of interrelated patterns, processes, flora and fauna of systems that include perennial woody plants. It doesn't always have to be a closed canopy. Woods that many of you are familiar with, especially our vermonter there. Uh, These open grasslands with trees, savannas these all qualify basic rules of ecology apply whether there are trees there or not. Just that we're talking about systems that include trees. And just because the forest isn't there now doesn't mean it it doesn't function according to ecological principles. This grassland rolling hills right here is in a phase of site development. Uh, We've done a little bit, uh, touched a little bit on succession, we're going to touch a little bit more on succession this once upon a time may have been looks to me like there's a lot of blowing sand dunes. It could have been uh, drift at the uh, end of a glacier. It could have been uh, next to a lake or an ocean for eons and now that sand dunes have developed or it could be a a former desert area that's become moist um, and now it's becoming developing into a grassland eventually becoming forested and of course the type of forest, the shape of the forest, the physiognomy of the forest itself is going to look different, whether you're in the tropics, the Arctic, -Arctic, subarctic, whether it's a dry site, a humid site, etc. Now ecosystem change, short-term ecosystem change happens in your lifetime and my lifetime. What we do when we're on the ground, uh, planting trees, uh, doing water management structures, building buildings, all of this is the succession of the site. And this is just some successional shots of my place. This is uh, 20 years ago in southwest Wisconsin. Uh, Maybe a year or two after that, we can see some, some, where are they? That's not one, it's a mullein. I thought there were some trees in the foreground here. Alternating strips in between these strips. So there's a small grains, uh, alley of small grains, alley of produce. Alley of small grains, alley of produce. In between, there's chestnuts. This ridge right there, we call that the south ridge. Um, that uh, it has a young chestnut forest on it right now. This was uh, 2003, I believe it was. You can see how the site has developed a little more. You see all the different lines for the water management strategy. If uh, we were that last shot, was looking across at this ridge, the alternating strips of grains and produce, grains and produce going down that ridge. A few more years go by, you can see the young chestnut trees growing. That's the same ridge here. <laughs> These are successional changes until now here it's all grown together and you can almost hardly see the rows sometimes. This was just taken um, uh, two years ago actually. Successional change and managing that succession of the system, uh, let's see if I can go back, yes I can, this right here it's going to continue to grow. These, these, uh, All these trees are going to grow, they're the, they're the locally adapted, mostly the oak savanna uh, and northern hardwoods um, plant communities that we have planted here, they will eventually with enough moisture and no disturbance grow into a closed canopy forest with very little uh, vegetation underneath, a, th- a thick duff layer, f- spring-grown ephemerals, uh, lots of decay and fungus. This will eventually grow to a closed canopy forest or if I continue to manage succession, I can keep it in a phase, an ecological phase also known as a sear, I can keep it in that phase that's most advantageous to uh, what I want to do on my particular uh, on my particular property, and we do that through disturbance. <clears throat> we farm the successional process. We use the species, and we know that this process is going to take place. We're going to go from bare soil of a cornfield through the lichen and moss phase, grasses, herbs, and shrubs, whatever the species are of your place. Uh, this is actually uh, quite similar to what could be occurring in Vermont. I, fixated on Vermont because I missed the Northwoods right now. I saw that someone was from Vermont. Um, So we interact with our site and we affect the successional uh, process on on our place with disturbance. And uh, all through the eons, uh, plants have moved across this continent in response to weather changes, uh, glaciation changes, volcanic changes, river pattern changes, All of these species have migrated across the continent based on the disturbance. And uh, ecologists define disturbance any kind of discrete event that changes the ecosystem. The the structure, that's its shape, you know, all the, the configuration, whether it's an open canopy, closed canopy, species composition, new species come in, old species get burned out or blown out or eventually become extinct for whatever reason. Uh, and it changes their functioning. Obviously different species and different planting configurations will affect their functioning. <clears throat> we want to understand how the structure, species composition, and the function of our system works, and so we need to understand how disturbance inter- interacts with our particular species suite and the disturbance regime that we use to manage our system. Disturbance includes landslides, major ecosystem components on the shape from the shape of the land, volcanism, some disturbance events are are repeated on a short cycle uh... once a year, twice a year, three times a year, once a decade, once every fifty years or as in this case right here once every ten thousand years or so your mountain blows up and then succession starts all over again that's a pretty serious disturbance if you happen to live in living there disturbance includes um, soil erosion uh... flood debris that's, that's blown, uh, banking collapse, and, and it disrupts the existing vegetation. This little place right here looks like it could be New Hampshire. <clears throat> uh, there'd be more people living there if it was Vermont. Disturbance somehow disrupts this. And there's a whole host of different things that could disturb it from wind to insects to disease, um, pest outbreak. When it kills organisms within the system, if we need to understand how the systems recover Uh, in order for us to learn how to interact with our own farm and and ranch. If we know how our property or our suite of species are going to behave if they're trampled then we know how to manage our animals in order to accomplish objectives. We can use animals as a management tool uh, or our equipment as a management tool and so on. We need to observe nature, how it works, understand these different disturbance regimes and recovery regimes in order to manage our property. Um, I already mentioned the different scales from continent-wide to you know single tree gets blown down. Uh, It can be from very infrequent like tens of thousands, millions of years to you know every single year. Uh, Disturbance affects the site by creating new landforms, it rearranges the parent material of the soil, changes the soil properties, it changes the light and the temperature uh, regime, Uh, and with all of that affects the biota on our site. Now just think of all those different things like I said, the shape of the land, rearranging the parent material, ch- somehow changing the soil property, maybe by the addition of new mineral elements that came down in a flood, um, you know, deposition of sand dunes and so on, uh, different light config- configurations, different temperature regimes, all those different things. We can affect our site and affect all those little things and when we are one at a time, when we affect one of those things, how's our system going to respond, knowing these things will help us to do our work uh, as a farmer rancher far more efficiently and effectively. Uh, So much so that the closer we get to imitating a natural system, the less actual labor time and the less expense is involved in managing our system, but we have to understand how that system works in order to nudge it through time using disturbance. Here's a case in point right here. These were, uh, you saw these a couple weeks ago, high-density chestnut trees that have closed the canopy now. Uh, With a closed canopy, the crown of the tree is getting restricted. They're not producing as many nuts per plant. Uh, The sun is starting to uh, not strike the forest floor, and so we're not getting grasses. They're getting replaced by more shade-tolerant plants. Well, if I want uh, grasses so I can have grazing animals in there, and if I want to have more chestnuts on my trees, I need to somehow disturb this site and so perhaps I come in through and I act like a windstorm, kapoof, and I blow down 50 percent of the uh, canopy trees and lay them flat on the ground. This is exactly what happened here. These are all mostly black locusts. There's quite a few sugar maple that were in there, some uh, American hop, horn bean, black cherry. But I just chop and drop, leave them on the ground. Leave them? them. Left them on the ground. <clears throat> of course, Exclusion of disturbance is its own kind of disturbance, and the classic is, is with the redwoods uh, in, the, in the west coast. And actually, mu- much of the Rocky Mountains and western USA has had, oh, 60 to 80 years of f- intentional fire exclusion, which really has caused as many problems as it solved. Once upon a time, people thought, it's like, wow, gee, all these fires are ruining the trees. We need more trees to grow. It's good to let the trees grow. So you have these nice parklands whether it's, you know, redwood parklands or ponderosa pine parklands in uh, Colorado, then they all grow up with these younger trees. And as we'll talk later on, many of the trees that come up underneath are not fire tolerant. And that's kind of on purpose because then they'll just burn out again. Well, the taller you let these trees go, the more danger there is to the the large trees. And once these are, are big enough, you could light these on fire and kill every single redwood. Whereas in this open parkland, Uh, these young little trees will sprout up underneath, fire comes through, and it keeps it as a grassy savanna, redwood savanna. And of course disturbances don't necessarily happen just one at a time, Uh, and their effects may be cumulative, their effects may be cyclical. Uh, Ice damage, for example, can break branches, provides an infection site for disease, which weakens the tree, which becomes susceptible to insect attack, and then the affected tree doesn't survive a drought, which kills the tree? Well, which disturbance actually killed the tree? All of these things work together. Uh, And for us to understand that it's not the most obvious thing, it's not the bark beetle that wiped out these sections of forest. The bark beetle is one piece in a big huge cyclical uh, cycle of cycles. We need to understand them. Most plant communities don't start completely from scratch. Uh, Our surviving organisms are the biological legacies. No matter where you live, there are biological legacies right now uh, that will be providing a certain amount of biotic inertia inertia, inertia, inertia to change away from what that system is. Whether you're in Vermont or Kansas or Missouri or Texas, the the trees and shrubs and bushes and grasses around you, they're sending seed in, Uh, there's pests and diseases that are associated with those plant communities. And if you try to establish a new type of system uh, altogether. You're going to be taken over with all the natural things that are coming in, uh, invading your beautiful little system. So understand the importance of biological legacies and try to work with them instead of fighting against them. Uh, Remember, human disturbances are still disturbances; Uh, they may be a lot more uh, damaging, um, but they are just merely disturbances. They'll only be here for a short, you know, couple thousand. Or in the case of uh, the Hanford facility. Uh, nuclear waste, maybe a you know, million or so years, no problem when it comes to a planet. Uh, it's a, kind of a problem when it comes to us. And you can see here, even on this mining site, there are still a bunch of legacies around here to reseed this. As soon as the people are gone, the process is going to start. Succession is going to start over and clothe that site with trees. Some of the physical legacies left behind uh, are, are bare soil, for example, or rearranged mineral soil. New microtopography as a result of uprooting, debris flows, and so on. Legacies, whether they're biological legacies or physical legacies, these are what set up our, our next uh, successional direction forward. So the pictures I showed earlier of the chestnuts that were too thin, I thinned out some of the chestnuts, removed a whole bunch of locusts. The legacies are the chestnuts left behind. And of course, the grazing animals that I'm going to bring through there and the grasses that remain there, they're going to drive the next wave of succession forward uh, so we can at least plan, you know, years, decades, even centuries ahead. I have a part of my farm that uh, I planted uh, probably 15 or 16 years ago, knowing that probably between their mid-20s and mid-30s my might decide to build a home and they might need lumber to build a home. So we've got land that would be paid for. and We've got the material to build a home out of. It's all right there. We're planning ahead and understand how to manage that site with the type of disturbance that we introduce to it. All right, so wind has an effect on the uh, macro and the micro uh, physiography. These are the warren dunes in Michigan. The sand, some of the biggest sand dune piles I've ever seen is quite amazing. Uh, obviously, if you're buried by a sand dune, that's a disturbance to you and your local system, but new successional pathways happen new uh, process. And I showed this a couple weeks ago when we were up in Minnesota. It's not all that easy to see but all along this ridge wherever we see the white sticks it was a, quite, a, quite a significant blowdown up in the boundary waters uh, a few weeks ago and we went up to film it. Um, like hundreds of square miles of trees just snapped off. Obviously this, this has rearranged the, the structure of the, the ecosystem. Different plants are left behind to survive. One of the things I wanted to talk about a little bit, there's a uh, uh, permaculture teacher online uh, who uh, made the, not a mistake, he just invoked my name uh, as support for an argument that he was making. Well, unfortunately, uh, he was arguing against observable phenomena. And he was talking about soil development. And it's, it's taught uh, quite widely that you never, 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 never disturb the soil because that's what ruins the soil you have to leave the soil undisturbed and somehow figure out how to plant into that, use mulches, sheet mulch, lasagna gardening, all kind of whatever um, and then there's there's a lot of people also that whine that swales and berms are not uh, you know are not necessary or even important. Well a couple of things right here when a tree blows down root plate rips up and tree falls over the root has or, uh, has its own organic matter, the duff on the top, plus mineral soil, rocks and chunks that are in it and it slowly decomposes over time and you end up with a pit, it's like our swale, and then our berm. So what happens is we've ripped up this, this uh, root system, we've exposed the mineral soil in the pit, this is new planting sites, new uh, plants can get established here, new organic matter can accumulate, this is creating better soil using disturbance. Well then this mound, this is now a mix of rocks and debris. We'll show some pictures in the next couple of slides. You've mixed uh, th- these rocks which were uh, below the level of, of where they would be acted on by oxygen or rain or freezing. <clears throat> so when you uproot the tree, all these rocks in the, in the soil particles now get mixed thoroughly with this organic matter and actually can accelerate the production of, of a, rich, um, a rich, thick, diverse topsoil. So what I wanted to point out in, in that particular uh, case right there is to observe phenomenal. Let's observe nature. What is nature doing when it is doing this? What's happening here when we have a depression that now can collect this organic matter that decomposes, that can have a little bit more moisture in it, and so these little tree seedlings can get established? Seems to me that this little depression in this particular case, in this context, with these species, helped these trees to get established. Well, now we see that uh, the mineral soil got thoroughly mixed with organic matter and it's going to slowly decompose in a pile. So we have an example here of what happens. I'm not saying this is good or bad or right or wrong. This is an observable phenomena that right here, this is going to be a richer, uh, more fertile soil in another five, 10 years as all the organic matter decomposes. There's more air in here for, ana- for aerobic um, bacteria and fungi, obviously of fungi in the roots and these uh, pieces of rock and the small chunks of gravel are all exposed to the oxygen. They're going to start to oxidize. uh, The acids in the rain, humic acids, are going to start to dissolve the minerals in it. This this type of disturbance actually, over time, will create a richer soil. Here's those little trees getting established. And I already mentioned all this. As the roots decompose, organic matter, the minerals become mixed, and so on. And the decaying tree is some of my favorites right here. Now gaps created by this disturbance allow light, extra light to come in and extra rainfall. So now it's enough for these, uh, these species that have to have a sun, uh, allows them to grow uh, a little bit faster here. Doesn't matter necessarily what opened up that canopy. We just understand how opening the canopy will, will uh, affect this little group of trees here. Now we're getting to the exciting part that wind, of course, tends to remove the overstory trees. A lot will ring off, they'll snap up the top, a lot will fall over, Um, whereas fire tends to remove the understory. Of course, when the fire uh, climbs all the way through the trees and crowns out, uh, that also will remove overstory, but those actually are the exception. They're not not as common. So there we go, fire. How's the fire coming along? Wayne, update. He's not listening? So fire uh, uh, worldwide uh, has been observed to be the dominant disturbance uh, factor in landscape history worldwide. Uh, Every climate, you know, even in the tropical rainforests, even swamps uh, will experience fires. This is a a place where I took a a picture of a, this is one year after a burn up near Ely, Minnesota, west of Ely, Minnesota. And notice that a brushy layer has been removed, the taller trees, that happen to have little thick, they managed to survive, or if they had shed their branches real early like these pines. One of the fire strategies is, is when they shed their branches young, they fall to the ground. There's no what they call ladder fuels that allows the fire to climb up uh, like that, climb up to the top of the crown of the trees, it just burns on the ground. Um, part of what's significant about fire is it doesn't just wipe out uh, massive acreages uniformly. Even if it covers you know a thousand acres, for example, the whole thousand acres got burned somehow. Different parts of that uh, thousand acres got burned with different intensities. Uh, And and it's a heterogeneous effect in that you're gonna have these random patches, you can have more of the uh, pre-existing vegetation that's totally intact. In some places, some places will be seriously burned to the ground. And that's all part of the whole diversity dance that allows that site to have more, uh, more species diversity because you can have different um, different niches available you know these types of trees here provide habitats for different plant or insects and plants and fungi than these types uh, this much underbrush you know it provides additional habitat that this doesn't and so on this this uh, a mosaic of uh, landscape forms is set up by fire
0: <clears throat> and
1: as a as a selective force it 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 uh brings about different different responses that, that biology has I'm talking mostly to plants here it Obviously affects animal communities, but uh, most animal communities will, uh, they'll either run and go away, and if it's the, the place is no longer suitable for them, they will try to migrate to somebody someplace else. Others will try to hide, dig in and survive. A lot of the burrowing animals you'll see like you know raccoons, obviously squirrels and chipmunks, woodchucks, a lot of denning um, foxes and cats and so on. Uh, the different, the different uh, woody plants, woody species have different survival techniques and reproductive techniques. One is asexual reproduction. All fire-dependent species will sprout from the stump. If you cut them down, they'll sprout back. If you burn them off, they'll sprout back. Stump sprouts are common in so many different species, uh, some of which aren't uh, very happy with fire like the lower right here with um, uh, beech and maple. Uh, the top, the tree itself, if a a fire goes through, it's very likely to die versus oak tree that has a thicker bark doesn't, uh, it doesn't burn out as much, doesn't um, kill it as likely. So what we see here, all these stump sprouts coming from this birch and whenever you see clumps like this, this was once upon a time a tree in the center. It was either cut and removed or it was burned out and then maybe where you live this is a five-year-old birch tree, maybe it's a 20-year-old birch tree up in Alaska that would be about an 80-year-old birch tree up on my homestead. <clears throat> um, and we can observe this phenomena in the species that uh, live with fire. One of the things back to the um, observation and concept, I went to a workshop on trees uh, a lady was um, teaching on the spiritual lessons of trees. Well, uh, I feel that trees have a lot of uh, non-material values to convey to us. And so I wanted to go see what, see what her, her shtick was all about. And we were walking through the woods, and all of a sudden we came upon a clump of trees just like this. And she gasps, and she says, oh my goodness, everybody stand back! this is a power vortex and she explained and waved her arms all through the air of how this power vortex caused this phenomenon in the trees and quite plainly at the bottom I could see the stump. I didn't want to like make her, her, you know, awestruck minions disappointed but uh, her explanation of this, this, this power vortex, if she had a way for all of us to observe this power vortex that I could give you the instructions of how to observe this power vortex over and over and over and over again, I'd I'd believe her because it's an observable phenomenon. One of the things about this right here is you can go look. There's gonna be remains of a stump in here. This is stump sprouts. It's a fire response. Also root suckers. One of my most unfavorite trees of all, uh, the black locust has tremendous root suckers. Uh, And if if you have... uh, like hybrid poplars at all that you've used, or even cottonwood. So will have these really shallow surface roots, and if you're uh, trampling animals over them or mowing it, you clip them at all, they'll start to sprout up again, and these can be a real royal nuisance. But a perfect uh, fire survival strategy, if a light grassland fire comes through here, those trees, the tops of these little trees, will burn off right to the ground. The prairies actually were uh, difficult to plow, in part because of the dense sod, But if you read the writings of some of the early naturalists, um, and I'm uh, remembering John Muir specifically, uh, the prairies were really difficult to plow up, not because of the grass roots, but because of what they called grubs. There were these ancient uh, root systems of of oaks, for example, and hazelnut that were growing in the grass, and it, it was a prairie. A fire goes through every year, you know, maybe as infrequently as every three to five years. It'll stay as a grassland, and you don't realize that this little tree grows up, and then a fire comes by, kills the top. The root stayed alive. Tree grows up, the root gets a little bigger. So year after year after year, fires are burning off the top. There's never any top to these trees, and the root system is gigantic, and you couldn't get a plow through it. What happened in Wisconsin and a lot of places, all, all across the Midwest actually, is uh, those areas then uh, were let go and the forest that was there, just not above ground, boom, sprouted up. It's a, it's a fire response. That survival technique, those trees are there, they're going to do alright. So you can see these root suckers coming up. Uh, th- these are on aspen. Some of the largest uh, organisms on the planet are actually aspens. that are all the same tree. Genetically the same tree, all connected by an underground root system. Uh, totally uh, fire adapted species. <clears throat> uh, one of the responses, or, or the uh, uh, one of the characteristics that's favored by uh, fire, is um, sexual reproduction, especially uh, with trees that have light and wind blown seed. Willows, cottonwood, aspen, birch, uh, most of the pines. This island right here that I took a picture of in um, Uh, Boundary Waters a couple weeks ago. That island is actually called Burnt Island. Well Burnt Island, why is it called Burnt Island? It's got two-foot diameter trees on it, white pines. Um, It also shows evidence of wind throw that all kinds of trees had snapped uh, through the years and just the tallest most sturdy pines uh, that leaned a little (laughs) bent with the wind uh, remained. Uh, This started, I think it was in the uh, 1920s um, when that, fi- that, that island was burnt, completely burned. Well this seed floats in on the wind and it finds uh, some exposed soil which we'll see later on and it grows really well uh, with very little competition. One of the things that also happens with fire uh, tolerant species is they have a higher of self-fertilization. The prunuses for example, you know cherries, plums, apricots, um, they can they can self-pollinate Uh, Same with pines. Pines have a high percentage, uh, so much so that red pine almost doesn't need any pollinator other than itself. Obviously once it pollinates with itself there's been a genetic, uh, slight genetic change, and so uh, the diversity does kind of increase the genetic diversity for a period of time. Uh, But most trees, if they have a lot of uh, self-pollination going on, they'll grow a little bit uh, more stunted, not as vigorously as um, open pollinated with other uh, tree pollen <clears throat> and it's obvious too that fire as it goes through is going to cause a reduction in competing vegetation um, for fire adapted species. If, if you uh, are one of these little species here that can survive a fire, your life is far better without all this competition around you, uh, whereas you're not growing up in a thicket. This is probably a big huge uh, thicket. There's lots of debris on the ground uh, that was in the way. What I want all of you guys to do as we're, as we're going through this exercise is to think about how these different trees and plant communities respond to fire. Well now how, how do they respond to fire and if this is a response that we want, if we want to have uh, reduced competition for a particular type of vegetation, perhaps a entry into our sites that resembles fire very closely or maybe fire itself Uh, will create those conditions for us. Uh, You know if we want to have uh, a place that looks like this how was this created? How can we create this in a a very cost-effective economic manner and how can we have the vegetation respond this way? We need to understand how these different systems uh, behave with this disturbance and let's imitate this kind of disturbance if these are the effects we want. I'm not saying that uh, fire in your system is good versus bad or that you should cut trees down here or not cut trees down there. What I'm saying is that observe the phenomena. What does fire do? It does all these things we've talked about so far. One of the things that it does is here's another thing uh, about the mixing of soils. What happens is uh, in a lot of fires especially on sloped ground um, you don't have any more surface plants with the, with the fibrous roots holding the uh, surface together and if a big rain follows, there's all kinds of mudslides afterwards and debris flows. So now what happens if there was an unburned place, unburned area down slope, and all this debris, whether it's dry uh, drifting or wet uh, drifting down the hill, this, all this new ash and mineral soil moves on top of this layer of organic matter that was the, you know, the grasses and the other leaves. Uh, in the system below, we have a mixing again, and we've prepared a seed bed. This is perfectly prepared seed bed for specifically the light wind-blown uh, seeds that would come in um, to, a, to a burned area. So what, uh, what it does is it'll it'll reduce the organic matter. Fires will reduce the organic matter into its basic constituents and, and cause um, nutrients to be available that weren't before. Wood ash uh, is fairly alkaline, so it'll it'll lower the pH, which causes uh, a lot of the decomposer uh, organisms to really kick into high gear. Um, Those of you, especially in the drier areas like Texas and uh, Colorado, California, um, what's going on in in Colorado, for sure, and in California with these catastrophic fires that are going on is uh, if if anything dies out there, there's so little uh, moisture, to do the decomposition that you have all this uh, woody debris that piles up and piles up and piles up. Also happens in the far north up in Alaska. The decomposition rate, uh, there's enough moisture for decomposition to take place uh, but it's just a, just slow and so you get an accumulation of organic matter. Well if you have uh, plants that need mineral soil to get established, many trees need to have that bare mineral soil. How do you get your seed in contact with the bare mineral soil? Maybe you burn off all that organic matter, <clears throat> temporarily lower the pH, you get some bare mineral soil, you get your little plant established. Now it's got water soluble nutrients available, less competition. It can really uh, take off and get established really quick and easy. So exposure of the soil is natural. It's normal kind of disturbance. How do we use this on our site to accomplish what we want? What, ha- what quite uh, happens quite frequently with um, fire um, Uh, adapted species, excuse me I'm thirsty, fire adapted species like the pine, like the aspen, like willow, uh, will come into a site that's been disturbed like this, a lot of bare soil exposed, millions of seeds come in. How do they say in uh, the vernacular, uh, yeah a lot of seeds. And they grow really thick, like, like fur on the back of a cat. Um, one of the things about this is this creates the next fire hazard. Look at the, uh, the wide spacing in these larger trees. These larger trees were left behind. These are the legacies uh, of the site. Well, they're all these pines that require uh, the fire. Jack pine is a, is a classic, um, how it depends on fire for its regeneration. So it just cast tons of seed on this little, this bare, exposed soil. Now think about what's happening here and, and this really relates to a lot of uh, what I talk about with planting a system uh, wherever you live, is if we're going to go plant any kind of woody species on our farm, we need to plant lots of them uh, because we, we are planting mostly seedlings because we are intentionally using the process of sexual reproduction to create variation in the offspring. Yeah, we may want to have some clones because they have a predictable crop size, flavor, uh, ripening period, harvestability, all that kind of stuff for uniformity, but we want and we need uh, uh, genetic variation in the, in the planting because we want to have the abilities to survive no matter what kind of uh, insult nature throws at us. There's gonna be species in this picture here that are more disease resistant. you know there are individuals that would be called varieties. Individuals that are more resistant to to fire, that grow faster, straighter, taller. There will be individuals that produce more nuts, seeds, bigger seeds, smaller seeds, and so on. We want to have the, the total number of plants on site uh, for that genetic variability and we get to choose because we're the site developers we get to choose which ones that we want to keep behind. Well in a situation like this all of this fire right now are all these, these trees right now are a serious fire hazard next fire comes through thins it out again and it thins it out maybe this stand right here uh, was burned you know four five six times by the time these trees got to be uh, this big. <clears throat> Actually there was somewhere I was just reading recently that the boundary waters itself had a fire period of about three to five years. Every three to five years, there would be a fire at any one site. If you just stood there for five years, you're going to get a fire within five years. Pretty fascinating, I think. Another thing that fire does, in addition to you know al- allowing um, dense, high-density pure stands uh, to be uh, planted. Uh, when you have these dense stands and fire hasn't come through yet, you now uh, get extra humidity, gets built up in there, you have extra sites for uh, for insect outbreak, disease outbreak. So fire created sites, um, favors the establishment of dense even-age stands like here, fire goes through, seed goes down, they're all, they all were planted about the same time naturally, so they grow even, they grow fast, same species, they're more uh, susceptible to disease and insect outbreaks. So now you've got bark beetles or spruce budworm. Now you've got all of this dead and dry material here. Boom, one little lightning strike or one little <clears throat> Colorado camper. And we know what kind of cigarette butts Colorado campers have. Um, leads to additional fires. And once again, once you burn these trees out, you're going to get a dense stand development of a, sim- a similar kind of fire-dependent species. <clears throat> and different sites with different moisture regimes will have a different fire period, how frequently the fire comes through. Basically, if you've got anywhere as jack pine, you're going to have a fire within 50 years. You just will. Get over it. Uh, same with lodgepole pine. The ponderosa pine is it actually wants to have fire. It's, it's a fire-dependent species. It's not as uh, flammable as jack pine. Jack pine kind of burns on purpose. We'll talk about some of its survival strategies probably next week. Fires will also help to eliminate parasites like mistletoe. Um, So how do we understand what's going on here? We get this dense uniform even-aged establishment of this species, pretty much a single species, maybe a couple, three at the most. How do we use that? How do we use that as a genetic selector? And once this happens here, how do we deal with the fact that now we have this big, huge fire hazard? Maybe this is the time uh, to log. Uh, if we don't want it to burn, if this is our own homestead, maybe we start to thin this out now to make it less fire susceptible in the future, uh, and you know shred this material, inoculate with mushrooms, etc. How do we understand how these systems are going to work? And if you live in a place like this, this is just something you're going to have to deal with. Fire is a part of it. Now eliminating parasites, mistletoe, um, you may want to eliminate them because you don't have as, as good uh, tree growth It's not as straight and as tall. These trees obviously are growing, will grow slower than if they had green all the way down. But we also want to think about this. Uh, This is actually a very useful product. Anybody who has uh, Christmas and people who kiss each other, you can be selling mistletoe uh, for for the holiday season. And actually, uh, I've worked quite a bit with uh, growers in Oklahoma, uh, actually supplying mistletoe to uh, medicinal herb companies it's uh, used as a anti-cancer compound. I don't exactly know how it's used, but it, that's used in the uh, um, herbal cancer apothecary. But the fire tends to retain the fire-dependent species on an area. So if you're in an area that, like, is, is ponderosa pine or jack pine, you know it'll burn through. The seeds will come down. It, it's favorable conditions for that species, uh, and the jack pine will regenerate. And then the fire comes through, and the jack pine will regenerate. The southern pines red pines, white pines, lodgepole pines, oaks of the whole oak savanna region, whether it was California, the whole you know, southwest oak savanna, the front range of the Rockies oak savanna, or the, the whole midwestern humid oak savannas, oak is not like the most shade tolerant um, late successional species. It's a, it's a mid-successional species, but it, it was maintained uh, by repeated fires, and of course grazing and browsing was thrown in there as well. Um, that these fire-dependent species in an area where the fire is, is, is uh, kept burning at a, at a regular interval or irregular interval, if the case may be, uh, but within a certain fire period, each different trees will have a different fire period that they want to have fire more frequently than this but less frequently than that in order to, for them to regenerate. And all of these different species I just mentioned are, are different. And, and if, uh, if the fire regime changes, the whole successional pathway changes. So like in the Rockies, for example, uh, Engelmann spruce is uh, not very fire tolerant at all. Uh, Douglas fir is a little bit more fire tolerant. Uh, ponderosa pine is very fire tolerant and eventually have these beautiful uh, ponderosa pine savannas with the, with, the, uh, with the grasses underneath. Well, if the fire is even more frequent, uh, even these trees will get damaged there'll be fewer and fewer ponderosas and it'll eventually turn into a grassland. That's the fires more frequent, less frequent, it'll be more engelman spruce. Well then if it goes the other way around, if we have, uh, if we decrease the fire frequency, we can shift from total ponderosa pine like here right now, then all of a sudden our our less fire or more fire sensitive, they would burn out, species will grow up underneath, uh, and then eventually these guys, the ponderosas, won't have anywhere to seed because they need it to be burned and bare soil underneath in order for them to propagate. So then it'll become Douglas fir and eventually um, Engelmann spruce. <clears throat> so what we end up with with all these all these different disturbances interacting with one another and with fire, even fire burns a thousand acres, a square flat thousand acres. Uh, it will not burn everywhere with the same intensity. So you have a mosaic of different age classes left behind and this is this is part of how we we carry species forward in time that if we burned it all uniformly we don't have that species represented anymore that actually might uh, that one particular insect might play an important control uh, role in some of our other um, plant life cycles that are going on. We can maintain uh, as many of the uh, total species diversity of our, of our area on our site, if we have a mosaic of age classes, sizes, uh, physiognomies, shapes, uh, configurations, layouts, etc. This is the way our continent worked for zillions of years um, before Europeans got here. And I'm going to show this one again. I, I mentioned it briefly with the ponderosa and Engelmann spruce. Typically the, uh, the, the species that come in in the understory are more shade tolerant. They have to be shade tolerant, or otherwise they wouldn't survive in the shade underneath these red pines. These are red pines that are sun loving. They're a fire dependent species. Uh, if there's a w- lot of wind throw, they'll they'll get uh, established. Their light seeds will float and land on the mineral soil. They'll get established that way as clumps. But in a large swath, if you get a large stand of red pine, that was a catastrophic fire. Uh, seed blew in. They got established. Well, then underneath they can't get established in the shade so it's not red pine that regenerates underneath them. This is mostly uh, balsam fir uh, and eastern hemlock, both of which are extremely susceptible to fire. And so then what happens is these nice tinderbox trees provide the fuel for the fire to come through, (laughs) clean it out, and keep it dominated as uh, as red pine. Or once again if these get too big, and the fire comes in, climbs right up, and it can torch out the crown. Now you've eliminated both Uh, both species have totally changed succession. So just look at what we have here for opportunities. We have these red pines that are dominating the site. If we want to keep this a red pine dominated site we can remove the understory. One easy way to remove the understory is through logging. Another way is through burning. Then we have a red pine site with these trees that are going to grow faster and thicker. Maybe we open it up enough so the grass grows in underneath. Now we're grazing cows in a pine silver pasture. That's one option. Another option is to just let this go a little bit longer and then remove the red pines and then we have balsam fir and eastern hemlock and, and uh, white cedar coming up underneath and then we manage it as a, uh, as a cedar fir grove. Firs are rather short lived, they would come out first. Some spruces that were in there and hemlocks are longer lived, they could come out spruce maybe second and then hemlock third uh, so we have a whole different range of uh, successional directions that we can send the site depending on what we what we choose to do with it. Um, so once again uh, this, this site in a natural fire regime it will tend to stay a fire dependent site that, that's colonized by fire dependent plants will tend to stay that way. A red pine site will tend to be dominated by red pines, white pines, uh, lodgepole pines, etc. because all the understory uh, brush as it grows up will tend to burn off. Now the stand habit, the the configuration, see the, the the spacing between these, this will determine how that particular stand of trees will be affected by fire. If you have a super high dense uh, stand of trees and you get a fire in the crowns out, that whole that whole sec- section is, is wasted. That's like the wasted meaning destroyed, not like gone to waste. Um, if you have a, a species that are intermixed with one another, a fire can come along here and burn through and and probably not kill everything. So, if you're going to be affecting the ground level beneath trees like this, uh, the stand habit, the spacing, uh, the spatial configuration of them has everything to do with how well they'll survive your disturbance, whether it's grazing or haying uh, or burning. Now, the site conditions, so here we got we've got all these fire dependent species here the site conditions at each site determines which trees are able to reproduce and like we mentioned here this these red pines here require some kind of wipeout to get rid of these understory trees they need those understory trees to go away and expose the mineral soil these trees require plowing if if you have it that way they need bare exposed dirt in order to sprout um, if fire comes through frequently, that's going to affect the selection pressure. Infrequently, frequently is going to uh, affect the selection pressure, pressure. What's going to happen is the species that are most adapted to that site, uh, the the those characteristics that allowed them to survive that regime propagate within that system. So if you want to get some really fire resistant uh, uh, oak, for example, go to a place that's like a a real dry sandy uh, area that gets burned frequently. They may reproduce really fast, they grow on really low, lousy soil and they, and they may start having acorns when they're really, really tiny. Uh, look to the, the tougher, more rugged sites for super crazy genetics. Here's a tree that, that grows and reproduces uh, without any soil growing in the crack in the rocks. Obviously, uh, if you're in a place that looks like this down here on the left, don't try to grow bananas, you know, I wouldn't mind having a tree like that on my farm, this big huge one. Next week we're going to talk a lot about uh, individual fire adaptations of different plants, different things that you can look at and recognize. These are adaptive strategies Uh, and then uh, what's kind of really uh, significant for for many of us, this is especially uh, North America centric here, we'll talk a little bit about some of the plant communities uh, in, uh, in North America specifically the ones that are more fire related, uh, that have a fire history and so if you live in the northeast of Lake States, uh, anywhere where there's, uh, you know, the western pines, Ponderosa, Aspen, or if you live down anywhere in the south, -south, mid-south, central-south, Douglas Fir in the Rocky Mountains, or on the west coast, giant Sequoia in the west coast, boreal forests in Canada, Alaska, the northern Rockies, if you live anywhere here, understanding how these ecosystems work, how disturbance affects these systems reproduction, is key to your figuring out how to imitate a system like this to produce your own food, fuels, medicines, fiber, and it also will help you to learn adaptive strategies so that if you happen to live in the front range of the Colorado Rockies and there's a fire right over the ridge, You might say, hey, man, I'm all set because I planted my system this way, have my water management, uh, you know, swales and berms that way, I'm okay. I'm not going to get burned out. Or, hey, I'm looking forward to a fire. I want it to come through instead of having to, you know, be seen in the evening news getting lifted from your roof by a helicopter. Not that that would ever happen. But one of the things uh, now if we understand the disturbance regime, and like especially next week I'll talk about about these systems right here. If we understand the species composition of our region and if we understand the disturbance regime we can imitate that in our restoration agriculture system. And I'm going right to this right now because uh, one of the most uh, what I think is is a, a quite a dramatic example of mega large-scale industrial agriculture is actually restoration agriculture and those are the blueberry barrens. Um, the state of Maine, USA is actually the world's largest producer of blueberries. They're mostly low bush blueberries uh, and they grow in crap like this. This is obviously not high-quality agricultural land. It's stony, uh, it's, uh, some of it's sandy, some of it's boggy, and it's an extremely fire-dependent system. Uh, what would happen on these blueberry barrens here is is it gets so hot and so dry certain years it just whoop, torches up and very few trees uh, survive, uh, survive on them. It's a lot like the Haith lands in uh, uh, you know, the, the UK and whatnot. And so what happens is uh, growers of lowbush blueberries in Maine they imitate uh, the natural processes and they intentionally burn their blueberry fields. All different kinds of machinery, they're imitating the effects of fire by actually using fire itself. This is actually, I think, one of the most uh, brilliant agricultural strategies uh, at the industrial scale that humans haven't even realized that they're, they're how ecologically sound this production technology actually is. So we'll start to we'll start to talk about these different um, plant communities, their different disturbance regimes, and then how we might imitate those uh, in our own system. And let's just keep in mind the blueberry growers right here, how they're imitating nature uh, and growing blueberries in barrens and burning them. And uh, that's all I have for this evening. And I'm just going to leave it on these uh, pictures because awesome. this is right up the road. This is right up the road from the uh, blueberry barrens. Uh, and and there was a, uh, this was a series of clear cuts uh, 30 years ago and what one, um one guy did I didn't take pictures of this last time I should have done that uh with his clear-cut he immediately went through with a bulldozer and he just pushed all of the slash in the piles and all the stumps and just burned it lit it on fire And it was really depressing a lot of people um, you know got irate that this guy it's already abused and he's abusing it more well then what he did is every three years it just burned it again and then burn it again and lo and behold it was about 10 or 15 years later. Blueberries came to dominate the site. He's got like a four, five hundred acre blueberry. This big, huge, bald hilltop. It's all in blueberries because they they were the ones that were able to survive that disturbance regime. So that's it for the evening. How about questions?
0: Awesome. Well, we have a few questions, Mark, and a couple of them are probably more relevant next week. But some of them are some clarifications. Um, somebody asks, um, what? What is a management technique pre-fire to protect from crown fires which can destroy the legacy species, redwood, pinyon, ponderosa, yeah. that, are, that we are managing for?
1: Yeah, That's a great question and, and so one of the things that uh, if you just remember a phrase is ladder fuels. What you want to do is eliminate the ladder fuels and so what those ladder fuels are, if you like look at the slide that's right here you see all these little white spruce that are underneath, highly flammable, there's some white birch that's got the paper on it that'll f- that'll light on fire. If any kind of grass fire comes along in here, the uh, these are butternuts, there's butternuts, and there's some oaks in here, and there's some chestnuts. They would tolerate a light ground fire, but all of a sudden the ground fire comes in, and climbs up these small flammable trees. So remove a lot of the smaller flammable trees, and then on your larger trees that you want to keep as legacy trees, start trimming the branches up. And if you're in a drier area, And that's actually, if you go to the Central Rocky Mountain Permaculture uh, Institute in Basalt, Colorado, there's one hillside, about a five-acre hillside that we did in 1993. We removed all of the ladder fuels, all the branches on the bottom eight feet, ten feet of these um, pinyon pines. Then we laid them down horizontally across the slope, and then we dug a, a little swale and we buried the sticks. So just think what we just did. We imitated pit and mound architecture. We took those, those sticks which are a fire hazard because it's so dry there and we, we got them buried with some soil. So now there's a little bit of moisture holding uh, capacity. They start to decompose more quickly Then you've got the pit that starts to accumulate organic matter, leaves, rabbit turds, uh, seeds get established in those, little, in those little pits. So to remove the uh, ladder fuels would be helpful um, whether they're branches on your legacy tree or the understory.
0: And guys, we're going to be putting some videos on. Mark was here at my ranch a little less than a year ago, and he did a couple of really cool videos because I have a ponderosa-dominated legacy um, situation, and <coughs> fire, about ten years ago, the la- that fire took care of the of fuels for the most part. Remember, Mark, you pointed out that what that went on, but but I have a portion of my grove that. I still do need to remove some of those ladder fuels and that, that's, a, that's a management strategy that Mark talks about video shows the video, shows exactly what we should do with it, just the way you described that. So, um, we'll be posting those or putting them in, in so that we can get some info from them. The next one is um, how much of a hurdle, this is one I can answer for Colorado here at least, um, is there to having a controlled burn to getting the governing body's approval? Um, totally dependent on their fear that you're going to not know what you're doing and that you burn something that causes the fire to get out of control uh, it's actually very easy to get a control burn from here in Colorado if you follow the rules and it's not going to be they, they'd like you to do it um, if you're not going to get it during a fire ban time of the year like we have right now but it's a pretty it's a pretty simple process And um, one of
1: them, and then here's a, a good one what was um, I was going to go to that insurance. same question, though. Same right. question, though, Wayne. One of the easier ways to deal with that, too, is to just hire a contractor somebody who does it. Then they've got the insurance that covers it if, if the fire gets out of control. It's not your fault. Yeah. Yeah.
0: That makes total sense, right? That, that'd be, that makes great
1: sense. <laughs> so um,
0: another question is what is the term phase that you used? How, how did you spell it? And then you just said also a question mark, tier. I, I, was I was a S E
1: R E, and I just kind of like used it by accident. Um, but yeah, that's it's a sear. It's the ecological phase. Let's see if I got that. I don't. I don't have a uh, glossary handy, but yeah, somebody looked that up. Make sure I used it right, because if I didn't use it right, correct me. We all learn here, you know. So yeah, it should be the sear.
0: So here's one um, comment from someone. I've seen people um, limb up pinyon pines and junipers. A lot of work, but, when, but then you have the loads of organic matter to improve the soil. This so is somebody said. It's easy agreeing, I think, to what you were saying,
1: Mark. What also, what's also nice about that too is is you're removing the branches down low. So as the tree grows in diameter, there's no more branches in it. So you'll have not free wood, and in it, in it's uh, a lot more valuable. As a, as a timber log when you eventually do use it for timber. So it accomplished a lot of objectives. It also helped to remove you know, a lot of disease sites, a lot of crooks in the branches where disease can get in, uh, you know, different kinds of fungal things can get going on there. And If you have branches on trees, let me see if I see this picture right here, see right over here? If You can still see my screen how sh- steep that branch is, that angle right there those can tend to get snow load or something like that and they're, they're more likely to break so you can get a, you know, you take these branches off, you'll have a straighter log, no knots, branches that won't, uh, you know, crotch that won't split um, and no ladder fuels.
0: Cool. Well one more and then we'll let Mark go everybody. This has been great. Putting a one on your hair if you enjoyed this tonight everybody. So this one I think is back to the same question related to phase and sears. How frequent or infrequent are you talking when you use those terms? Perhaps you could give a few examples of specific types of forests. Are their appropriate burn intervals just to give us an idea of the norms or extremes? I don't know. I, again,
1: well, I, I, I guess what I'll, do, so, what, I'll, what I'll do I, right there, I'll talk a little bit about that right there, is uh, the fact that everywhere is, is different, absolutely everywhere different. And to think of a norm um, is classic Western reductionist materialistic thinking and it's not observing nature. There will be a norm on a site and it's site-specific. It has to do with the, with the landforms, the climate, it has to do with the orientation north, south, east, west, where the wind goes. It has so many factors involved and there's no such thing as a norm. It's totally site-specific. Yeah, you can get regional guesses and ideas. Um, so. No norm. So everywhere from every one year to every five to eight hundred years.
0: Great, great info. And
1: lots of ones here.
0: Somebody put one with a whole bunch of exclamation!s Thanks to everybody. Let me just throw something out real quickly. And this is for one person out there, and he'll know who he is. Jeff Lee. Jeff, if Jeff for he has not gotten back to you yet, he's going to be getting in touch with you about the conversation that you and I had. So. And Mark is also aware of it, so we'll we'll chat with you when, when we can here. Uh, Mark, that's awesome. Again, we're going to continue with fire. It sounds like next week a little bit, Mark, right? And, and uh, also with other disturbance. So,
1: yeah, it'll be. Uh, let's uh, go ahead and uh, see how those how those systems behave, uh, and fire is a part of those systems.
0: Well, again, the, the replay will be up sometime tomorrow. You can go back and look at it. Again, if you're not registered yet, we'll get you there. And Dustin, thank you so much for saying thanks. Appreciate that. Thank you for all of you. Thank you for our staff, Mark out there in Bangladesh, and, and uh, for Stephanie. Stephanie, say hi. You, you're. I was going to let Stephanie kind of do all the end of this, but this fire sort of kept me in the house where it looks like they got it under control. There's not nearly as much smoke now. so it doesn't look like we're threatened today. By the way, Mark said it. We actually have prepared. I would like, I'm actually at the point almost where I'd like a fire to come through um, in our area. We'll get to that point. So, um, so thanks, Stephanie. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Mark, and we'll catch everybody next week. Bye. See hey, you next week. Hey, everybody. I bet you enjoyed that immensely.